Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, in the great COVID test... Which governments passed, which failed, and how should they and we adapt to the post-pandemic world? After all we've been through, it isn't enough just to go back to normal. Das Coronavirus verändert zurzeit das Leben in unserem Land dramatisch. Covid has exposed uh, weaknesses uh, in our country where vulnerable people are continuing to slip through the cracks. Cet effort que je vous demande, je sais qu'il est Inédit, mais les circonstances nous y obligent. We've been through too much frustration and hardship to think that life can go on as it was before the plague, and it will not. To explore how this world will look, I'm joined by two writers who've been gathering insights into how countries are governed and have both got around the planet a fair bit in their long journalistic careers to compare the fates of nations. Fareed Zakaria hosts CNN's international affairs show, Fareed Zakaria GPS. It strikes me as being much more about class and culture, what in Britain you'd call class and culture. Those features Uh, you know, entirely uh, prominent in this response to COVID. He's the author of 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. And John Micklethwaite is editor-in-chief of Bloomberg and previously had the same job here at The Economist. His new book, co-written with Adrian Wooldridge, our budget columnist, is The Wake-Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. You can have a marvellous private sector. You can have fantastic things happening in your country. America's a living example of that. But if you have a public sector that doesn't work, what COVID taught us is that something has to change. Both of them, coincidentally, quote that controversial prognosticator Vladimir Lenin. There are decades when nothing happens and weeks when decades happen. They agree that since COVID-19, the world has changed. But that leaves open the rather more important question of how governments, policymakers and civilians like the rest of us should adapt. Fareed Zakaria and John Micklethwaite, welcome both to The Economist Asks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here too. John Micklethwaite, you pose this idea in your book of the great COVID test for all governments in the world to pass. That would imply that you've sat there watching this pandemic unfold, thinking that some did materially better than others. So how do you score the world's governments? I think the easiest way, and it's somewhat crude, is to use the deaths per million number. And on that number, um, Britain is above 600 deaths per million. America's coming close to it. Germany's down around 100 deaths per million, a little over that. Canada's around 250. You're already seeing fairly dramatic differences between different countries. But when you start going to Asia particularly, you see really 
enormous differences. You see numbers of sort of 30, 40, 50 deaths per million. So a fraction of America's nearly 600 deaths per million or the UK over that. And in China, you actually claims a number of only three deaths per million. Now, none of us might believe that. But even if China is hiding 90% of its deaths, so imagine the real number is 30 deaths per million, that would still mean they're roughly 20 times better than America at protecting their people. Now, we would all point out that some of those numbers are recorded differently and so on. But the, the margin of difference is so gigantic that I think you can say that there is a, there is a big difference. And your broad thesis in, in the book is that the West, given its resource and given its view of itself often as being advanced and, and able to take on difficulties and have resilience, has done badly. That's quite sweeping, isn't it? It is sweeping and there are definitely exceptions. I mentioned Germany earlier. You could say New Zealand, Australia, another set of examples. But on the whole, I think especially if you take the United States against China, especially if you compare Asian countries, Singapore, Japan, South Korea, all those ones, it's a big difference. If you want another example, and I know Parid's looked at this too, you look at Seoul, London and New York, they're all about the same size. Um, Seoul's actually a tiny bit bigger. New York has lost twenty over 20,000 people. London's lost 6,000. Seoul's lost about four or five dozen, depending on how you measure it. And, and that's nothing to do with the sort of or not a lot to do with the sort of societies. It's basic things like organising, testing, all those things that make a difference. And remember, Seoul is a place with, you know, it's the home of K-pop. It's the home of Parasite, which won the Oscar. Um, it's the home of some of the world's biggest nightclubs and very crowded subway stations. This is a big city, not unlike London or New York. It's not as if they had an easier starting point. So yes, I do. Th I, I think it's worth looking at those things, and I think it, there is. I'm worried from a Western point of view that an advantage that the West generally has had um, for nearly 500 years, or certainly built up over those 500 years, um, is now seeming to go in the opposite direction. And that's why we don't say the West has lost. We say it's a wake-up call for the West to react. Fareed, how do you stand when you you hear that? I think John is quite happy to be pretty sweeping. He says it's a wake-up call. We have to see these big trends in the handling as telling us something. Do you agree with what he thinks it's telling us? I would look at it slightly differently, and I look at it differently in my book in the sense that what I'm struck by is that it COVID has shed light, and exactly the kind of COVID test uh, that John applies has shed light on a fascinating phenomenon in the modern world. We tend to think of governments being judged by essentially a kind of the, the great 20th century test, which was the size of the government, the size of the state, um, but or maybe democracy versus dictatorship, but, you know, kind of the, in a sense of political variation on that uh, big government versus small government. Many of the countries that did very well were democracies. So while China might have gotten some advantages by being a dictatorship, Taiwan is a raucous democracy. South Korea is very democratic. If you say to yourself, well, maybe it's the countries that have big states that did well. Germany did very well, and that's the one place I would, I would disagree with, uh, with John. There are Western countries that did very well, and they have big states. Canada did pretty well. 
On the other hand, Japan has a small state, Taiwan has a small state, South Korea has a small state, Singapore has a small state. So what is what are we finding? What we're finding is that we are entering the 21st century with a different criteria than people have been using before. It is not the size of the government, it is not the burden of taxes, it is not even the burden of regulations. It is the quality of your government, not the quantity of your government. And you see that very clearly in a place like Singapore, which again has just a fraction of the deaths of any Western city. These countries, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, were backwaters just 20 or 30 years ago, corrupt, uh, dysfunctional, but they have gotten their acts together. Their governments work well, they are efficient. The scientists and technocrats have a great deal of uh, sway there. Most of these governments that I'm talking about in East Asia copied many of their institutions from the West. And so maybe the lesson of COVID is it's time for America and Britain, which for so long were the tutors of the world to become the students and learn from East Asia, not the quantity of government, but the quality of government. But I think we should talk about America, uh, partly because the virus has been so viciously prevalent there. And uh, as John Micklethwaite reflected, the number of fatalities has been so high. And of course, on October the 2nd, the US president himself was admitted to Walter Reed Hospital after testing positive for COVID-19. And that has certainly refocused minds on that in the election campaign. So broadly speaking, John, how do you assess the American response. So you were there quite a lot of the time in your present role with Bloomberg. What have you seen that has caused you particular anxiety? Well, I think that you have to separate the stuff which is linked to Donald Trump and, and particular politicians making mistakes. And I should say at the beginning, both Reid and I, and I think all of us, you know, wish, wish President Trump a, sp- a speedy recovery. But in terms of kind of dealing with COVID, I think you can put a whole series of mistakes down to him, um, including the fact that I think he did nothing to unite the world in the way that America has united the world in previous crises. He didn't unite much of America. He issued somewhat unorthodox um, advice. And as Fareed pointed out, you know, they were very, very late to move into this. In some ways, America had much longer than anybody else. It was sort of a month, a month and a bit before he really began to do much. So all those things you can blame Donald Trump for. But many of the problems to do with this or to do with American government in general totally predate him. You know, it's not Donald Trump's fault that you have a health system in America that is angled towards looking after the old and the rich rather than the poor. That was always going to be brutally exposed by a disease like COVID. It's, you know, the other problems in America, you look at racist policing. Donald Trump did not invent that. I covered Rodney King 30 years ago, and nothing has changed. Or you look at the things which Reid was just pointing to, the fact that these countries in Asia have learned from the West and improved on them when it comes to education and health. American schools have been worse than Singaporean ones for a very, very long time. That is not Donald Trump's fault. So there is a bigger sort of systemic thing. And if you're, I think that's a real danger with the Democrats in particular, that they, they imagine that if Joe Biden comes in, you've just changed the person at the top. It's going to be different. It's America's health system would always have difficulty dealing with this thing, even if it had been led by someone else. And all those other problems are structural. Let me just pause on that for a second before I bring Fareed back in. Are you seriously saying this would have been, broadly speaking, the same and broadly speaking, the same pretty disastrous 
outcome in terms of handling the pandemic with a president who wasn't Donald Trump, despite his many misses and indeed his defiance of a lot of fact-based recommendation about how to handle it. I'm saying that Trump, like Boris Johnson here, made a whole series of mistakes. But you look at the problems of American government and they go much, much deeper than him. And I think it definitely applies to the healthcare system. You know, we all saw on our screens, we saw doctors in New York having to use ski goggles to do operations because there wasn't enough kit. It's hard to blame that on Donald Trump. Uh, Fareed, do you, do you give Donald Trump to that extent, limited benefit of the doubt that John Micklethwaite does? I really wouldn't. I think that uh, the United States did handle Ebola. Uh, it did handle H1N1. And these were all very small in comparison. But what you noticed in all of them was a high degree of activism on the part of the White House, uh, coordination. You know, the American go- American government is very chaotic. It's divided because then you have 50 states, you know, many of which are as large as uh, European countries. And all that has to be coordinated through the process. So it's, so it's very, very difficult to do and, and near impossible to do well. And yet, presidents have been able to do that. It, it takes very active, sustained attention from the White House. The big difference, I would argue, is not so, not so much that Trump didn't really take COVID seriously, which is true, but it, isn't, it doesn't expose the reality of the failure. The problem is that Donald Trump doesn't take governing seriously. He doesn't really believe that it's something that de- requires expertise and professionalism and time and effort and energy. To the extent that he has an ideology, uh, it is a governing ideology that says we should deconstruct the administrative state, that the deep state is not just pointless, but evil. Now, if you bring those kinds of ideas to bear to a, to a fast-moving global pandemic, you are going to screw up. And, you know, you can tell the difference. Bush handled the, the hurricane very badly and uh, Obama handled uh, Ebola well. This is not accidental. One side has believed in government uh, and the other side has, has believed that, the task, that its task was to, as one famous Republican uh, activist said, to get government small enough that I can drown it in a bathtub. That's Grover Norquist. Well, if that's what you believe, that government is not going to be very effective fighting a pandemic. Fair, is that a fair charge? And John McElvady does sound, Fried has thrown up a new red line there, it does seem to be saying it's basically Republicans will have a tendency or a Republican in the White House to handle this kind of crisis worse than a Democrat. Do you agree? I think there's, there's a bit in that. I mean, I would say that you, Republicans have controlled the White House ever since 1979 with only um, Obama and Clinton being the only two people who've got through it. And you could argue Clinton by pretending to be fairly conservative. It wouldn't just have been Trump as a Republican president who would have had this slight problem with government. It is endemic in the party. But I do, again, I think that is part of the systemic problem in America at the moment. You have a, a, a right-wing whose only answer to everything to do with government is we want something smaller. If you want small government, go and go and look at the Congo, go and look at places where there is no government. It, it's, if the answer to everything is zero government, that's, that's not a great answer. But there is actually quite a lot of problems on the other side, which perhaps wouldn't have been quite so exposed by, by COVID, but are definitely exposed once you start looking at things like education. And that is on the Democratic side. There is the links between the Democratic Party and, 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 and the public sector unions. So in a sense, the, the difficulty of American government at the moment is you have a Republican Party 
whose only answer is sort of zero government or as little as possible most of the time. Um, and then you have the Democrats on the on the other side. Trump, for what it's worth, does believe that you can use government to sort of change the world. He's he's always trying to bend government into doing things for himself, but just not very successfully. The Economist this week said Mr Trump's diagnosis with COVID keeps voters' focus on COVID-19. This is now an election essentially about how the US has responded to, to COVID-19. What, what is your view on, on that? And if so, on prediction time, what do you think is likely to change in this campaign as a result, John? I, I think it does drag it back to COVID a bit. And I think Donald Trump would rather have talked about urban violence or a variety of other things or the purported weakness of, of Joe Biden. I, I th- Personally, I still think it, it gives um, Biden the edge. This sort of puts pressure on the, the idea that this is a person who wasn't very good at managing anything, including actually the sort of White House in the context of this. That said, you know, I've talked to people, uh, reporters this morning, there is no doubt that a lot of Americans feel a great deal of loyalty and sympathy for Donald Trump, especially in conservative America. And this is rallying that side of America to its cause. So you would expect it to be close. But at the moment, I still think the advantage is with Biden. But one does have to say, if you do believe in polling, and remember the polls, the national polls were accurate in 2016, Hillary Clinton had a three percentage point margin, and she won the election by, I think, 2.8 percentage points, by which I mean she won the popular vote. It was distributed in a weird way in four or five states, which is why she lost the Electoral College. So we are in for a post-pandemic election. We have to see, though, don't we, whether polling has improved to, to get to that, because that, that obviously that polling right. could be, be right, right but, in uh, aggregate, but obviously if it's wrong in the crucial... Right. States it could be it could be wrong in the states. But yeah. but the more important question, I would argue, since Biden's lead is twice that of, of Hillary's, the bigger question is, what does it mean to have a, a, an election in which over 50 percent of the ballots are mail in? You know, this is the this is the kind of post pandemic election. And it's not just in the United States, by the way, we're going to watch this all over the world. I'm going to move you uh, both on, if I, I could, to the, the global take. We've touched on big state, small state. I think there's consensus. I'm trying to break up this merry consensus just a little bit with this thought. I would say, uh, John, in fair disclosure, having uh, worked at The Economist for a few years, not not a load of years, but a number of years when you were editor, I think you were really rather associated with a, a slightly smaller, smaller, nimbler state agenda. So have you become more friendly to a bigger state? The answer in this particular debate really isn't big versus small. I mean, in the in the book, we invent we look at America and we invent a fictitious president who we actually reach into the 19th century and pull in William Gladstone and Abraham Lincoln, merge them into some sort of Frankenstein figure called Bill Lincoln. And we set we set this mystery president at the problems of America and we give him only one, one condition is that he must use things that work elsewhere. Now, the interesting point is that actually he could be either a Republican or a Democrat because what he believes in is 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 both Abraham Lincoln and William Gladstone wanted as small a state as possible, but they definitely wanted one that helped the poor as much as possible and didn't direct money towards the rich. And what's intriguing about if you look around the world at the moment, it, a lot of it really is smartness. We talked about Singapore a bit. You look at, you look at its schools, it, it doesn't spend a lot of money on them, but what it does do on the public service it rewards the people at the top of them. It gives, you know, the head of the Singaporean Civil Service can get over a million dollars a year. No Republican would ever dream of doing that. They would think 
that was a total waste of money, giving money to the public sector like that. On the other hand, you get rid of bad teachers in a way that Democrats won't. And, and I think again and again, the answer is to be smarter. Do you mean, when you say smarter, do you mean tougher? Because Singapore is also a very, it's a very tough society. It's a very authoritarian society. It's also having rather awkward segues from Lee Kuan Yew, who was a, a whatever one thought of his politics, was a, a great global figure, a great figure on the, the global stage who basically brought up and kind of brought this country to prominence. There are lots of things that look very unhappy in Singapore at the moment, including parts of its human rights record and the, the way it, it has treated drug offenders. Yes, I think there's a whole authoritarian side of Singapore, but I don't think actually fundamentally, if you look at why its schools and things work, it's not actually for that reason. It, they, they work because they bring in good teachers and they pay them, pay them good money and they sack bad teachers. People like Lee Kuan Yew was once described as the best bloody Englishman east of Suez. You know, he was somebody who took lots of ideas from the West and then changed them in a way that China in, in its better form is sometimes trying to copy. And that was exactly the same thing that people like Toyota and did with with all the ideas like lean production were actually Western ideas that Asian countries did much better in the corporate sector. And then what happened was the West, the Western corporate sector began to use those ideas as well. And in a weird way, the, the problems with government at the moment is that we've had this set of ideas which the West in some cases came up with, in other cases, people like Lee Kuan Yew adapted them, and they come up with this sort of smarter government, which is, is quite good at doing quite a lot of things, but there hasn't been the copying in the, in the West that we need. But you cannot continue. You can have a marvellous private sector. You can have fantastic things happening in your country. America is a living example of that. But if you have a public sector that doesn't work, what COVID taught us is that you, you, it, something has to change. Where does this leave China? Uh, big question. We can't leave uh, un, unchallenged here. We know that the uh, the virus began its course in China, and there's still an argument, really, about the response of the government in Beijing. Uh, broadly speaking, seeing as we started out scoring countries for their successes and failures, uh, Fareed, where do you stand on what the pandemic teaches us about where China is headed and the implications? What the pandemic has done is revealed China in all its complexity. China remains sui generis. It, China remains very unusual. And to the point, to the discussion that we've been having about, you know, the, the future of good government, uh, China remains a, a kind of weird exception, which has taken a very strange combination of dictatorship and markets uh, and openness, for example, in the consumer economy and technology, but yet enormous amounts of state control. We have to still figure out how to combine freedom with effectiveness and efficiency. I worry about that for the West in general. We are sort of being weighed down by, in some ways, a successful past, while the Singapore's and Taiwan's and South Korea's of the world, and by the way, Taiwan and South Korea, again, to emphasize, very democratic, very open, have found a way to just combine freedom with efficiency. John, you've said you think, John and Adrian Woldridge, your co-author, say in the book, this could be a historical turning point in which the global centre of gravity shifts from west to east. I'll, I'll throw you a challenge straight up on that. And it's a, a recent review in the, the TLS, the Times Literary Supplement, by Charles Pohl, Lord Pohl, who was private secretary in the past, of course, to Margaret Thatcher uh, and a very eminent foreign affairs advisor. And he said, you shouldn't get carried away and postulate a future in which China wins on every score, that 
despite its relative success in dealing with the pandemic, this shows a lot of its weaknesses. Have you got the balance? It's a very difficult one to assess, but have you got the balance right on China? Have you got a bit carried away? No, I think, I, well, firstly, we, we point out that the virus took off in China in part because it has this authoritarian regime where people were so scared of the centre that they hid what was going on. I think what's interesting this time compared with SARS is that China did react much more quickly than they did previously. And again, we're not saying that, I, I think there are all sorts of reasons, both Farid and I have said it repeatedly, you look by any measure of, of, of things, the democracies of this world are so much stronger than the autocracies and China in particular, that I think there is a newer challenge. So again, if you say something is a wake up call, you don't say something's already happening. I think pretty much all of us, if you'd, if you'd given us, Farid, me and Charles Powell, if we'd given us a list of countries which we thought could handle this crisis well, it's pretty obvious who the countries who have good governments are. And we would have probably come up with most of them. We could have got a few things wrong. I suspect we wouldn't have guessed that Greece would do so well or Vietnam would be so much better than America. And we probably might have said Singapore would do even better than it did. So it's, it's not perfect. But the whole point about a test, it's like an exam. The students who are doing well um, tend to do better in the tests, not always. Sometimes you kind of fluke your way through. The Chinese have got a long history and they remember their failures and they want to fight their way back. And I don't think at the moment we're focusing enough on that competition. I did read a, a response to your book, John, but I think it's an interesting challenge to both of you to conclude with, that a lot of people are making predictions about what the world will look like. And a bit like after the financial crisis, you can mentally remake the world and you could say, oh, my policy prescription is exactly what we need. And the time has clearly come because we've had COVID. And maybe, maybe it has. Or maybe it hasn't. And maybe, as we saw after the financial crisis, a lot more returned to, uh, quote unquote, normal or what the world was like before than changed a result. Do you think that might be the case when it comes to the post-COVID world for Reed? No, I don't. I think, you know, if you if you look, human beings can forget things and repress and go back to normal. That's entirely true. I, I point out in the book that after the Spanish influenza came the jazz age and the roaring 20s. So, you know, people went back as if nothing had had uh, had happened. In fact, perhaps went back to drinking martinis with a vengeance. But What's different is this this pandemic has come at a time of great change anyway. One of the ways to think about this COVID test you've been you've been asking us about is that I'm struck by the fact that the countries that seem to have done very well are countries that were in some way willing to learn from their their own failures. So the Chinese learned from their failures in SARS. Uh, you know, what you see are in a sense the countries that do not have some great pride in a storied past that they believe can never change have done very well. And then countries that believe they're special. Uh, they've tended to do badly. Uh, Britain, the United States, Brazil has this great Brazilian parochialism about itself. Chile for the last 20 years, has uh, 30 years, has really thought of itself as the, the, the most brilliant, fast-growing country in Latin America. All those countries have done poorly. So you're, hang on, you're betting on the upstarts. John, um, what do you think? Is it possible that we are imagining a post-COVID world which might just happen to uh, coincide with what we'd like to see happen anyway? So we might be getting a bit of an outbreak of confirmation bias. 
No, I think, I think firstly, I substantially query the idea that the financial crisis didn't have many things. I don't think we probably would have ended up with Trump or Brexit, just to name a couple of things that came out of that particular thing. You look back through the history of, of diseases, just take diseases as one. Some diseases don't have much of an effect. You could Spanish influenza was incredibly powerful in some ways, but politically didn't have much of an effect. On the other hand, we got a welfare state partly because of the desire to, to cleanse the slums of London of, of disease, because that threatened the well-off ultimately as well as the poor. I think you look back to the decline of Rome and you see the role of plagues in there. You look at Athens giving up to Sparta. You know, diseases at different times can cause things. It all depends on whether society reacts to it. And in general, and I'm going to make the same sweeping historical um, calculations that you have to do in these circumstances, you look at times when things change. They tend to involve several things. They tend to involve national competition. Well, this time you've got America with the dragon's breath on its shoulder. They tend to involve technology. You know, with 100 years ago, it was mass production. Before that, it was the steam engine. Those can change these things beyond a doubt. And the, the last thing is new ideas. And I think the one thing that we're lacking at the moment is, is new ideas about what to do. There are ideas, as we, both Freed and I pointed out, new ways of doing government out in Asia, which could make a difference. But to that extent, what both Freed and I in different ways are saying is that people need to look and think and imagine how the world can be. And I think that's, that's a big, important thing at the moment. And I think the odds must be that, that there has to be change as a result of what's just happened. And we haven't had, I'm afraid, many moments of, of, of lightness that we've been able to enjoy in this particular time. Both sides of the Atlantic feels a bit grim at the moment. And you mentioned, Fareed, earlier, martinis with a vengeance, the return of martinis with a vengeance, <laughs> which made me think, gosh, I'd quite like a martini with a vengeance. What's your very personal tip for getting through the anxiety of the... COVID era? Well, I've found uh, that I've embraced it rather than fighting it, uh, that I've tried to t say, say to myself, uh, what are the things that have changed in my life? I'm, I'm not tra I haven't traveled as little uh, at this point in the last six months uh, as I have in 35 years. I'm seeing a lot more of my children. Uh, I'm reading a lot more. We've all managed in better or worse, and I've, I've managed to actually enjoy it. But I do think, I don't mean to end on a more sober note, but this rise of inequality is something deeply worrying. I'm sure, and I know that your book, John, with Adrian Waldridge, does also reflect that, so I wouldn't mean to make light of that at all, not for a moment. But Martini, with or without a vengeance, have you discovered something some little comforter that just gets you through the more worrying days that we experience with lockdown, with family and, and worrying about our family and friends and colleagues. Well, the risk of sounding like the British ambassador who was asked what he wanted for Christmas and um, said that he rather wanted some nice, a nice little box of Turkish delight and then discovered that everyone else had asked for world peace and the future of future of mankind. Um, the, there is the, that risk. So I will Let's agree with, formally. I will agree with Fareed about the fact that that many people had a rough time. In my particular case, I spent a lot of it in the English countryside. It has been the the joy of wandering around this place, part of which I grew up in, and that's been a real that has been a comfort. It does give you again, very luckily, more time to think and indeed write books like we've both done. That that is a that is a plus point. Although obviously, running a newsroom takes up an immense amount of time. 
John Micklethwaite and Fareed Zakaria, thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Such a pleasure. Your tips for getting martinis with a vengeance, very welcome, especially from this host. And more broadly, of course, we'd love to know what you think. Will the post-COVID world look radically different or perhaps more like before than we tend to think? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for your best introductory offer, do go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Plenty more on COVID-19 in the world today and what will follow and much, much more. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.